My name is Kim Rothwell, and this is the Return to Embodiment. I am delighted to introduce my next guest, Deidre Fay. Deidre is a leader in the integration of yogic traditions and concepts with attachment psychology and healing especially for trauma. She's designed a program called Becoming Safely Embodied that offers concrete practices that guide towards healing and wholeness. And in this conversation, you can hear simplicity and hope that she instills. Welcome to the Return to Embodiment. Thank you so much for being willing to come on my podcast. I'm really honored and grateful. It's a real pleasure. Always to talk to similar-minded people for sure. I've been reading through your book and I've also... Um, actually been taking a yoga teacher training. A lot of what I'm reading in your book is resonating because it's familiar, but y- you, uh, you bridge so much. Right. Yeah. It was astounding to get the, the intersection. I was like, whoa, this is so awesome. You know, the whole yoga world and then the attachment world. It was like, oh man, this is, this is, it was a bridge for me. It was nice. Yeah. Well, the teachings that, the, that they're there, that they're really there. Like that's, to me, that's when you know you're in the wisdom tradition. It's right there. Yeah, the teachings align. Yes. Yes. So how is embodiment to you? Right. That's a, you know, that was a great question when you had asked it. I thought to myself, I had to find that out myself because I know when I, you know, when I first, you know, I lived in an ashram. And when I first got there, I was very active in my body, you know, swimming. I was training for triathlons, running hiking, biking, but it really wasn't, and I was doing a lot of yoga, physical postures, but there was still a sense of blankness inside. Like if somebody said, well, what do you feel inside or what do you know? I don't know that I could have responded. In fact, I can remember at one point having the thought like, oh, like nobody's home or they're, 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 like it was empty, empty, not in the way that we talk about it, the higher spiritual paths, but just like I couldn't find myself. And so over the years, what I realized for myself as I actually began to have a structure inside to hold and tolerate all the many things that go on, that that, that is what embodiment is. It's, it's really a sense of being psychologically, emotionally, um, and physically inside yourself, being able to sense who you are from inside, to be able to really 
get the, um, the nuances of being alive from inside. And we need that if we're going to have access to our own inner wisdom. If we, if we don't, we, we, everything is based on the outside. So we need, it's such a critical thing. We need to be accessing our own self. Does that feel resonant with you? Oh, yes. I think that's a beautiful way of framing it. Um, access to what is because the um, discomfort or trauma or there it, it creates barriers to access. All those things create barriers. Right. Right. And it's confusing. Yeah. The other thing that is so intriguing to me is that, you know, attachment theory and actually the yogic wisdom says that there are fluctuations of the mind that are impinging on consciousness. Attachment says that the, um, the past is invading the present. It's the same thing, different points of view. But part of our task as a human being and, and the, de- the development of consciousness is to be able to know, am I experiencing this right now as reality or is this um, a samskara, the, 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 the knots of our past? Is this the past invading the present? How do I know when I am here instead of caught and trapped in my, uh, the mishigas of my mind and so in the Becoming Safely Embodied skills, one of the things we do is really look at how do you know when the past is invading the present moment? So how do you, inside your own system, know that experience of being here? And that's critical, I think, for people to actually begin to be able to sense how do you be here in the present moment? How do you be have access to your own wisdom instead of getting caught in the swirls of the traumatic activation that can happen so frequently and so fast? In fact, what people will often say is, it's so real. It is real. And I'd be like, yes, yes, it is real. But is it real in this time zone, in this present moment, or is it real because it's the past coming through to activate and release itself and that's where i think the yogic pattern that what i call the transformation of yoga the yogic psychology is so important because it's it literally says we are clear and we're clean and prana is moving in and through and around us all the time unimpeded unfettered and yet over time as uh, we have get wounded or hurt that it creates not some scars it creates imprints it creates these divots in our consciousness and then what happens in this prana it's still moving its only task is to bring us home to ourselves really it's meant to free us and so as it's coming through trying to free us it hits up against these knots and boom you know this some scar is getting ground down and we're like it is happening now, but it's the past releasing itself. It's our, it's really the old patterns are getting released if we allow it to move. 
The problem is we all, and myself included, get caught in the stories that are embedded in those samskaras and we get trapped. That's why it's so essential to have a practice that allows us to step back from the activation and step back from the story so that we can reshape the story. And, you know, somebody said to me once, well, all we're doing then is inserting a new story. And in some ways that's true, you know, and in some ways it's, there are going to be very few individuals that can be totally free of a story. But the question is, can we have a more nourishing or satisfying or um, enjoyable story to live in rather than a traumatic story? So that that's what is hopeful. And it's also why I feel so strongly about trauma is a modern-day bodhisattva training. It's a, a training in compassion. It's not meant to just break us apart and throw us under the bus and kill us. It's meant to actually help us bloom and become ourselves. But it takes its toll. When you were talking, I was thinking about, you've said so many things that I'd love to to go with. Um, But I was thinking about, you write a lot about the compassionate witness like that part that can see what's going on um, and, and ride it and even trust that, I guess, from the somatic psychology's perspective, that that process of the energetic phenomena happening around the, the artifact from the past is an attempt at healing, right? That's the healing process happening. It's the body being like, this isn't serving me. Let's move this out. Right. But it involves heat and it involves intensity and it might, it might shift the breath. And um, few of us are taught that those processes are actually part of our body's impulse towards healing. And that's not all of who I am. There's a piece that can track it. And it seems like that's what you're, um, the stepping back from the story, when the story's enmeshed with that phenomena, if we can kind of step back from the story and let the phenomena be and have whatever that part is that can just track. Track and slow it down. There's, I I call it body time, the sense of, dropping out of our chronological time because the body moves at a slower pace. And so it's hard to pick up the wisdom when we're rushing through. So like you talked about breath, needing to slow down the breath, be able to use our breath and harness it so that we can slow things down and then open to the wisdom that's trying to emerge And it's complicated for people. I was just talking to somebody last night who's really smart and with it and done a lot of work on themselves. But the learning the tiny movements of that aren't part of the story, but just the movement of the system as it's shifting, um, how do we listen to it with our inner ear and have it um, teach us about ourselves. 
And then, of course, there's the other piece of when we're trying to change a pattern, how do we teach our bodies about a new way of being? In the neuroscience, we call it a facilitated pathway. How do we generate a new way of being, a new pattern, so that it's more um, satisfying and fulfilling? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. And so in your process, you were a yogi and living on an ashram and doing the spiritual path and then had this moment where all of that became undoable and you needed to face the trauma right I didn't know I I mean that's how compartmentalized I was I didn't know I had a trauma history nobody had ever named it was it was the way it was you know it was just activated all the time and so um it was in a you know as a teacher teaching at that time and I was at a training teaching us a different form of work and you know stuff came up that it was like oh my God, it hit me over the head. And I literally went from being able to be in front of crowds of people or in my body, you know, working out the way I was to not being able to do anything. And I was like, what happened to me? You know, what was this? And this was in the 90s, you know, when there was so little about trauma at that point or the field of trauma, you know, the great theorists like Bessel and Jim Chu and Judy Herman were really only then just starting. So I didn't really have access to that. But as I was doing my own healing, it became more clear that this is what was going on. And I'm, you know, in retrospect, I'm very glad. But it was, you know, as we all know, when we're healing, torturous. It was just, you know, so hard. But I became committed to, like, there is a way through and it doesn't have to be as hard as we make it out to be, you know, and um, at the ashram, we would have these conference, psycho-spiritual conferences, you know, that brought in big names of people. And I remember hearing people talk about a self-container. And I was like, what are they talking about? I had no idea. You know, inside me, it was empty. So that intrigued me and it really helped sort of push me or orient me. And it's when I learned, um, and trained with Dan Brown, my mentor in attachment theory, that I got what that meant, you know, that this is really about building an inner platform so that you can access your own self. Otherwise, it's just empty inside. Yeah. And so you you then went on and you studied with Dan Brown, you became a social worker or studied social work and started to gather wisdom of the yogic tradition that you had studied and practiced and draw it, draw from the attachment as well and bring those two together and see how they fit you had this traumatic experience that gave you insight into both of those, both of those. Right. Well, the, the, the chronology was a little different in that I left, I went to social work school and uh, that's where I started learning about trauma. There wasn't a lot 
even being taught at that time. But then I had read about Bessel's work and one of my placements at social work school was at a hostel, large teaching hospital. And I, the people there had heard that I was, had lived in an ashram. And so they asked me to teach yoga and meditation on the dissociative units at night. And it was, you know, I wasn't paid for it. It was totally, you know, volunteer, but I was really curious. I wanted to know how could I take what I had learned of putting myself back together and see if it could help other people. And it was during that time that Bessel Vanderkolk heard about what I was doing through a colleague, a friend and colleague of mine, Sarah Stewart, and in, who was on his team. And he invited me to come join them because uh, he was just getting involved in the body world. And he wanted to see what, you know, what they could do. And so I started leading groups there, which eventually became the Becoming Safely Embodied Skills. But it was through that I realized that there was a missing piece and I didn't even really get it until I sat in a workshop that Dan was giving and it was like, aha, this is the missing piece. This is why trauma doesn't resolve because we're not attending to these underlying attachment needs. And, you know, Dan was a phenomenal teacher and I learned so much, but it still came down to, I wanted to know, I knew it all in my head, but I wanted to know how to change from the inside, not theoretically, not conceptually. I wanted I wanted to be different. And so that's where I was working. Like, how do I take this and actually live it and change myself? And that's, I think, what really made a huge difference is shifting myself and being able to train myself from inside how to have a different pattern, a different life, and really deal with the the subtlety that's there. And that's the problem with trauma is trauma is so activating, you know, and our attachment wounds are so huge that we get, we really just cycle in and through those, those wounds rather than being able to release them and shift towards something else. A different, a more nourishing story. A more nourishing felt experience of being alive, you know, because we're always, the possibility is always there. And, I, you know, I'm still teaching myself this every day because life is the way it is, right? How do we take a break from one thing to another? Like I'll often talk to people about, you know, if you look at your hand, what happens is we get identified with the fingers, the skin, the lines on our hand. But how often do we take the time to look between the fingers, you know, to see the space that's there? and rest in that. And that was one of the gifts I got from my main teacher, Jean Klein, who was an amazing Advaita yoga teacher. And Advaita is one of the traditions of non-duality. And he was one of the cleanest, clearest, most beautific people I'd ever met. But he would point us toward what is the space in there? How do you be with that? How and I was such a novice at understanding what he was teaching that I'm still, how many years, this is 30, 35 years later, I'm still only now training myself and what he was teaching back then. Something about the space between and spaciousness and identifying. The space and, and, and letting prana move, letting the consciousness move from 
from within, you know, to, you know, when we talk about the Kundalini awaking, you know, we all have concepts about it, but can we actually let that prana just move us rather than our fears and anxieties move us? And certainly we're thinking about the coronavirus right now when there's so much understandable fear and anxiety about it. But even then, if we trust this pranic movement, it's, I really have seen it happen. So I know it works. If I trust it, I can trust that movement and surrender into that movement. And I will be taking one step, the next step. And then after that, the next step, I, um, even if you get sick, there's ways to listen deeply to the wisdom, which helps guide you through. Mm-hmm. And to have a better life. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a dance movement therapist. I don't know if you know that, but... Um, That's awesome. Yeah, I love, the, I love the work. But what you're describing, because we talk a lot about space and use of space and the difference between having a sense of freedom in space, so moving beyond the body boundary, mm-hmm. expansiveness, um, and the constriction and binding and control that happens around fear or suffering or pain. There's kind of a... Um, there's we're always we're always moving between those things right even in our breath there's probably there's more constriction as we exhale more expansion as we inhale but um just reflecting on how that expansiveness is associated with more with a different way of being in my body of accessing the world and how often energetically when I'm triggered by something, it's an energetic feeling of condensing. Right. Right. And it's hard to let go. It's hard to be in that free movement. And as a dancer, you know what it's like to have to sense that space and that everything that rushes is that, you know, controls that space and shifts it again. But Dan Stern, Daniel Stern, the great uh, psychoanalyst and the research child development, would talk about this, the forms of vitality that move so freely in that. And he found dance to be one of the ways that opened it up. And we see so much with, you know, either people move with total abandon and as a way to get away from it, whatever pain they're holding or they contract around it and don't move. And then all the space is in between. And it's like, so what if we didn't hold that as real? Like we can move a little bit more. We can expand a little bit more. We can um, not have to be out there all the time, you know, you know, and certainly those of us who I know, you know, this, who have been on the spiritual path, you've seen a lot of people who spiritually transcend and use the practice is to get away from what's going on. Um, but it doesn't heal that way. You know, it's a question of how do we dip in, be with it, and then expand out again so that we can incorporate what we're, the, the pain and the wounding into the gloriousness of life 
And then take the gloriousness of life and bring it into the contracted bits. Mm-hmm. Hard to do, but it, you know, that's why we call it a practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'm thinking about the part in your book where you were talking about the koshas. Right. Right. The many different layers of the body mm-hmm. that are there. Because we're so used to thinking of the body as just a physical body, but there's the emotional body, there's the belief body, and eventually there's this the bliss body, you know. And, and, I, and I've actually found that that's often the harder people for people to be with is relaxing into bliss and allowing bliss into their body. What's it like to savor bliss and trust that that's part of the the flow? And in fact, if we allow that to just flow, we might end up there more often. I remember one of my early Becoming Safely Embodied Skills groups, I was saying something, excuse me, something like this, and people got offended that I was saying at the bottom of every experience is bliss. And they were offended because I was denying their pain. And it's not about avoiding it in any way. It's about embracing the pain so fully, being so with it, that it's actually we find the other side of it, which is the bliss and the possibility Mm-hmm. The, part, the part that is untouched yeah it's not even a part it's all that is you know when we talk about it's just where we're in whatever that flow is we're connected to everyone everywhere everything all the time can you in that space can you tell me about some of the experiences you've had of bliss well, you know what? It, it happens even just now talking to you, being related. This is where I love the attachment work is in that place where two hearts connect. Even for a moment, there's a place of ease and like a spaciousness and a sense of vastness. And, and, and I, what I believe is these moments are available to us so much of the time and we forget to savor them. We forget to uh, cherish them. My Sufi teachers would talk about drinking those moments in so that we become so familiar with them. And that that's so much of what I've come to see and what the attachment work I do is about having people not just incorporate the trauma and the wounding, but have that trauma and the wounding be held in the spaciousness, the vastness of the, all that is. Instead of contracting down, it's like, and even in the contraction, how do you hold that and the vastness at the same time, simultaneously? And doing that, the mind cannot comprehend one or the other. It's trying to, it's trying to move into duality because that's what the mind does. But when we keep training ourselves to hold both, there's like a clonk that happens. There's a, a moment of um, trueness come, that we see and know. So it's just learning how to train ourselves to see that more often. So you find it in that, con- in connection. In connection with you, in connection with life. I Recently, I was having some kind of a difficult time. I don't even remember what the content was, 
but I remember sitting on the couch and just like, like activated around something. And I just, just slowed down the moment. So small. It's like, it's like watching the dust particles move in the air in the sunlight. I was like, to say it is one thing, but to be in it is to be entranced with it in that moment. There was momentary relief. I didn't necessarily stay there, but that momentary relief reminded me, you know, in the traditions we talk about the pointing out the way, like those moments point out what's possible. My task is then to remember to live in that and embody that more often and string them together moment by moment. Mm -hmm. I love that. I love that. First of all, that call to um, drink those in and string them together and um, recognize them as the broader context. That's the, like you said, it's not, the part it's the all-encompassing but i don't see it mm-hmm. most of the time right um, right so cultivating the capacity to be able to see that i love that um the other thing i'm i'm noticing is that you have so many teachers mentors right that guided you that nourished you that were part of that connection of pointing you toward it right that's true i feel very lucky in that and at the same time i can remember thinking i always wanted a a main teacher but I never really had one. And I try, you know, Yongi Mingar Rinpoche is a wonderful teacher. Uh, um, Ramanand on Stapleton, another great yoga teacher. Thomas Emilio Shivanand, another great yoga teacher. My friends have been great teachers. You know, I've had certainly amazing opportunities to train with some people in the attachment and trauma world. Janina Fisher was a great friend and mentor of mine. And, um, you know, so I do feel lucky about that, but they're there everywhere if we're looking for it. You know, life, prana is not separate from us. The Sufis talk about the beloved and the beloved. You know, we are the beloved and the beloved is there. We just have to be in love and life will guide us. That is the practice of prana. That is the practice of yoga. To be at one yoga union with everything. It's conversations like this that remind me, you know, that that's what's possible. And so that we can bring that into our everyday life and remember. And enjoy and love <laughs> those 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 yeah. words are so easy to throw around but really how um you spoke at the beginning about maybe it's just replacing it with a different story but what a beautiful story mm-hmm. <laughs> right right oh, to wow. have a better story right gathering those stories that are that 
you see as really nourishing. It's, I mean, it, you're talking about Sufis. I didn't actually realize that you studied Sufism. How did that fit into your timeline? Well, it was probably in the last 10 years. I can't remember exactly. But it was very powerful, very powerful. You know, by, and this is, I think, what we can trust is by listening to that longing I had to love. I wanted to live as unconditionally loving as I could. But I didn't know, you know, and so I found a lineage that they're, they're very clean, very clean. And they're very, uh, the teachers I had at that time were very clear about not letting the ego run the show and trusting that love would shine through. And that was very, again, a very powerful training for the time that I was in that and really really showed me like if I trust I'm going to be taken exactly where I need to go but things don't often they take you off course but they're taking you off course because they're taking you back to yourself if we're listening and not trying to control it when I when I went into the ashram so that would have been in the 80s mid 80s um you know, yoga was very not cool then. It was just, you know, I can. Re- I was working in advertising before that, and I can remember my colleagues calling me um, at the ashram and laughing that I was at this cult in this yoga ashram. And but my heart needed it. My heart needed. It. And then by trusting that. Um, and trusting living without money, you know, we made $35 a month, you know, it was, it was scraping by, We, you know, everything else was provided, well, not everything, but, you know, things were provided for, but uh, we weren't making any money. And I'd gone from making a lot of money to not making any, again, trusting that process that the deconstruction of life is actually helping you become more yourself. But it's so hard, especially in this time of chaos that we're in, to trust that that deconstruction process is actually benefiting us. One of my clients is in the process of moving their house and letting go of the dreams about what that house would mean. And you know, it's hard. You get it. We get attached to that. But that deconstruction process is actually very powerful and will guide you to the next step. You know, most of us don't trust it. We we fight it. We rail against it. In the in the deconstruction, there's reconstruction. There's creativity. There's something new to be born in that. Always, always. You know, that's why we have the stories of the phoenix rising from the ashes. These this isn't fake. Um, you know, it is about trusting that life will take us and guide us. Did you have an idea this was going to be your journey? You've just followed this path. It seems to me listening to you, you've followed it through its deconstructions of you left the ashram because you needed to do something else. Well, that's what I really believe that's what happens when we're in the flow of life. And in fact, um, Joseph Campbell would talk about that, that, you know, Bill Moyers asked him, did you ever feel like you were being guided? And 
Joseph Campbell said, yes, I felt like I was being guided by invisible hands all the time in retrospect. And, and I can say that in retrospect, but when we're in the middle of a transformational process, it's total trust, total trust. I mean, we have images, that, you know, from the movies of Harry Potter when he steps off the cliff. We have Harrison Ford, the same thing. You don't see the path, and then you take a step, and the path miraculously is there. But, you know, that, that hesitation, that anxiety of taking that step is terrifying. And if it wouldn't be transformative if it wasn't, but who wants to be terrified? I mean, some people maybe do, but it's brutal, it's brutal. And then we let go. And then life says, I'm here. The beloved is right here. I'm right here with you. That's why we need to train, train ourselves in the small ways, because there will be big ways, always. Yes, and that that's your becoming safely embodied Program. Well, that was that was one step. That was a way of organizing. You know, when how when I tried to figure out, well, what did I do to get myself back on track? You know, when Bessel said, you know, do a group, I was like, what were the components? You know, and I went through small, basic, granular steps. And later on, I learned in the attachment theory that that's part of what's so essential. Carlin Lyons Ruth talks about scaffolding of learning how to have. Take, have a child take tiny steps so that they can actually achieve something. And Liz Means in the UK has studied a lot of that as well, of how do parents intrude on the kids so that instead of letting the kid find the next step and help them take that next step, they try to do it for them and take it over. But if we learn how to break things down, which is what I did with unknowingly in the Becoming Safely Embodied Skills was Take one tiny step. What's that next tiny step? You know, like what's a thought? What's a feeling? What's a body sensation? Instead of being just dropped into the morass of the inner world, it's like, no, there's structure here. There's something we can pay attention to. Uh, How do we uncover what the story is and separate all the facts, you know, the present moment from all the irreality that we put on it? And just really tiny steps. And People over and over, over these 20 years have said that's been the most important thing is the breaking it down into these small little practical steps. And so I feel really grateful for it. I felt like a when I first started doing that, I felt like a, kind of like a non-academic, you know, it wasn't a grand theory. It wasn't like this huge thing. It was just these very practical steps. But over and over the years, people said, this is what helps. This is what helps. Janina Fisher would send all our clients there and be like, what's going on? Why are they getting better? So getting better so much faster. It's because these small, tiny steps. So it's learning to trust that over time. And so whatever small step we take, it's not about getting there fast. It's about one step and grounding in that step and letting that become the reality. And then the next one and the next one and the next one. And we will get there. We will get there whatever way, emotionally, psychologically, developmentally, we get there. Mm-hmm. Well, this is amazing to talk to you. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. <laughs> I love talking to you. I feel like we could go on and on. <laughs> A true kindred spirit, and I'm so grateful to have this moment with you.
Thank you. Bye. A big thank you to Deidre Fay, who is the first person I interviewed that I didn't know personally, and she made it so easy. And I must acknowledge Deidre's most recent book, Attachment-Based Yoga and Meditation for Trauma Recovery. If you haven't read it, I encourage you to do so. It is truly elegant in the way that she's integrated the theories thank you for writing it for bringing all of yourself to the creation of it thank you to the embodied education institute for sponsoring this podcast thank you to josie rothwell for the opening music and to aaron kate dunnick for the closing music And thank you to our listener for joining me, Kim Rothwell, in the return to embodiment.